the, um, the handful of people who are in here for both services know that that song actually impacted the, uh, the sermon I'm going to be talking about today, and so I needed to just sit there and absorb that. Um, uh, so a couple of things. First, just to, just to let you know, um, I know um, sometimes pastors are moving away from this um, way of thinking. I, I think of church gathering as, as more of like a synagogue um, and less of like a, a temple, and so um, this is a place for us to gather as a big family and, and to discuss our community and that kind of stuff too, and as well as to do the teaching and the worship and the, all the other stuff that are involved in that. And so, um, uh, one, just to let you know, it, it's intriguing that of, of all things, um, uh, not reactionary, our, um, our staff and some of the people who we've put together on a team have been working for a little over a year on creating kind of a security protocol for our church. And, uh, and so as we've been this week, as, as many people, our churches are, are kind of in panic mode trying to figure out <clears throat> what to do, um, we actually had been um, kind of thinking that this would probably be um, when we would be reporting uh, to the leadership board and, and, and the deacons and others to, to take the, this conversation to the next level. But um, just, just know that this is something that the issues that, that the church um, down there in San Antonio faced um, last week. It's hard to believe it's already been a week there, and hopefully you've been praying for them, um, uh, particularly, you know, gripping and hitting very, very close to home as the pastor, uh, for me, obviously, is the pastor's um, losing his own daughter in that attack. And so um, I just want you to be aware that this is something that's not, that the potential of this is not news. And, and this is a hard conversation to have in a church for multiple reasons. What is the, what is the role of the Christian in protecting their own life? Um, that's not all that clear biblically in, in the New Testament and Jesus' teaching. And, and at the same time, there are legal, significant legal ramifications. Um, you're not allowed to just put together a security team to you know, walk around armed. Um, that's illegal in Texas. So um, you have to have licenses for that. And so we're, we're wrestling through all those, and hopefully within the next few weeks, um, we'll be able to talk about that and, and get the word out about that and even post on our website kind of what our security protocols are so people will know um, how we're shepherding that question um, but more importantly, in my opinion, than that for this morning for us to discuss, and again, this is something that a lot of pastors are moving away from, and, and I, I just can't make myself do it, and I don't think I want to anyway, so I'm not going to. Um, um, I, I really want to just take a second every, every time we're reminded to get the opportunity to do this to recognize those people who, um, speaking of security, um, who have risked um, their lives in, in to be trained, to, to defend the, the, um, uh, the rights that we have as a, na- as a nation, to um, to stand up and take up arms and that kind of stuff. And so um, if, if you don't mind, if you're a veteran or an active service, if you would stand so that we can celebrate you and tell you thank you um, this week, we just, just take any excuse to do that that we can. And this is obviously a good week to do that. So thank you. Um, thank you. Um, that, that is a, um, it is a big deal. And, and we're aware of the fact that, you know, we, there could be a day in America when being part of the church means to be an underground church. Um, but we know that right now, part of why we have the luxury of being able to publicly meet um, under certain governmental protection of our freedom um, to do this is because of the stand um, and the willingness to sacrifice that so many of you men and women have taken and uh, millions of others. So again, we're, we're very grateful um, and would never want to take that for granted. So thank you. Um, now, as we're jumping into the last of the story of Samson, um, this is such a tough story. 
Um, this, this special, this little section is, and I want to warn you in advance, and we're going to keep coming back to this, but let me just tell you that the natural tendency is to look down our noses at Samson as, as just one of the great idiots of the Bible, um, and no doubt he is. Um, but at the same time, I think there's such a powerful, teachable thing for us in the midst of this um, that, that I, I don't want us to in any way dismiss him or his story, especially this part of his story, because of that. Um, because that would somehow imply that that story would not or could not be our story. And it certainly is and or could be. And so um, I want us to humbly come to the story of Samson um, and Delilah, <clears throat> which is a very famous story. And yet um, it's, got, it's got that same feel to me that David and Bathsheba does of when I come to this section in the Bible, even though I'm not a giant fan, it's not, I don't have the affection for Samson that I do for David. But still, when I get to this chapter that says Delilah at the top of the little subtitle, you know, says Delilah up there, I still feel that I had that same kind of creepy feeling of, of watching a horror movie and somebody's backing slowly into a dark room like this, you know, their flashlight, and you're going like, don't, don't do that. You're in a horror movie. Don't, don't walk backwards into a room. That's, you're just asking for it. And, and I feel that way when I'm reading about David and Bathsheba or Samson and Delilah that you're like, you, you want to warn them, like you want to yell at the screen or something like, don't, don't do it. But... They're going to every time you read it, and um, it's painful. And here's what's interesting. I will tell you, today, this time studying through Samson, I think for the first time, um, I've come at Samson a little bit differently. My heart is different about Samson than it ever has been in the past, and I think you'll pick that up as we're going through here. Um, so we're meeting Delilah. We know almost nothing about Delilah. Um, her name means delicate. Um, so uh, uh, this is meant to be a, be a name of beauty or whatever, although I will say that that a couple of the commentaries reference, and this is one of the challenges of the Hebrew language, and I'm, I, am, I am not even nearly a Hebrew scholar. I, I don't even understand Hebrew vaguely. And so, um, but, but some of the commentaries reference that this could also, uh, being Hebrew and everything has multiple meanings, this could be like an action as in to make delicate. Um, or in other words, to debilitate um, was what one of the commentaries said. So here you have Delilah, whose name means one thing, but as always in Hebrew, it has kind of a double meaning potentially. Um, here's what's weird. We don't even know the nationality of, of Delilah, and I didn't realize that until this time around. She actually lives in a region of Israel where Jewish people typically lived, not Philistines. So the level of betrayal is even potentially bigger. This may be a Jewish woman. So here, once again, we're going to start creating this kind of house of cards for Samson that, that he has finally, apparently, found love. We don't get the impression that he loved his wife in Gaza. I mean, loved his wife, the Philistine wife. We don't, we don't get the sense, certainly don't get any impression that he loved the prostitute in Gaza. There's no, in that area. So we don't, we don't this may be a new thing. The language here may be meant to imply that, that Samson has finally found what he thinks is true love, which is just going to make this betrayal all the more painful. Um, the Philistines know that he loves her. Somehow this gets out. And so the Philistines, it tells us in 16.5, the lords of the Philistines came to her and said, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Now there are five lords of the Philistines. So you're talking 5,500 pieces of silver. At least say three to 5,000 ounces of silver. So this is, a, this is a small fortune, if not a large fortune. We're going to see in another story that a Levite is hired on 10 pieces of silver a year. That's how much it costs to hire the Levite. 
10 pieces of silver a year, she's going to get 5,500 pieces of silver for pulling this off. One commentary said that this does imply that this is a Jewish woman because a Philistine woman would not require this type of reward to get Samson killed. So again, maybe even more painful. So she seduces him at the price of his secret. I mentioned this in one of the other sermons about this, but it is worth mentioning again. I think um, it is our natural tendency. Often one of the things that, is, that Delilah is criticized for is her seductive power. And we need, we need to acknowledge that, that that's, it's not evil to have seductive power. Um, female sexuality is not somehow bad. Um, we see the story of Esther. We see Esther's seductive power working to lead Xerxes to the truth, to a positive thing. And so I think we have this natural tendency, because the world has for so long treated sexuality as common, meaning nothing special. It's just what's done. I think, you know, I think when you go back and watch TV shows, and especially in the 80s, you see that transition. What was it like in the 50s and 60s? You know, Dick Van Dyke and his wife are in two separate beds. You know, we didn't, we're so afraid of sexuality at that stage. But, but the response to that is this like common, like, eh, it's no big deal. So the church is, sometimes it seems like the church's response to this idea was to say, no, no, it's not that sex is common, it's that it's trash. It's something to be avoided. It's something that makes you filthy. It's something that's bad or, or whatever. And this, is, this was a bad idea. This is not an accurate biblical perspective on sexuality. It isn't that, that sex is either common or trash, but in fact, treasure. And, and that's how, how the Bible engages with sexuality as treasure. Powerful. It's a very powerful thing. It's like a gun or a fire or things like that. Things that in the right hands and in the right way and in the right times are positive life-giving things. And in the wrong way and in the wrong times and in the wrong relationships is destructive and lethal. And, and so that's, that's the image we should probably have, the, the correct biblical pictures to understand sex is very powerful and the Bible treats it as treasure, and so, which means it needs to be treated and handled in a way that, in, that gives it special value. God has created a special trophy case for sexuality called marriage. It's a protective thing. It is, it is the proper place in the proper way in the proper time. It's the fireplace for the fire so that it doesn't... The same fire in the fireplace that gives you life on the couch is lethal. Um, someplace else in the house is dangerous. And so to say, we, this is what God has done with this, is to create this powerful picture, but it's treasure. So I, 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 I make the analogy, it's like having, winning a gold medal in the Olympics. That's, that's really the idea that, that it's not common, it's not trash... It's not something you wear every day. It's not common around your neck. It's, like, like it's not something like, yeah, everybody's got those. I mean, it's like there's something special about it. Never, probably people who have Olympic gold medals probably never go, where did I put that Olympic gold medal? I can't remember where I put that thing. My guess is you always know exactly where your Olympic gold medal is. I, I, I wouldn't know. But I, I've got to assume that if you have one of those, you know where it is all the time. And in the same way, sexuality is precious, it is treasure, it is something to be honored and celebrated in the proper ways, but it's too powerful to just let loose, and our culture is a place where it's let loose. As we talked about at the beginning of our study of Judges, the Jewish nation at this time was a place where this has been let loose in the community, and it is killing them, it's destroying them. And we see it destroy Samson's life, his inability to engage in a healthy way. The problem isn't that, Deli isn't that Delilah is seductive. It's that her, her seductiveness is for sale. That's the problem. 
Um, on Wednesday nights, last Wednesday night, this Wednesday night, we'll skip for Thanksgiving, and the next one, we're, we're continuing to do a marriage emphasis. So you can bring any questions you want to discuss on those Wednesday nights. Um, we had a good crowd this last Wednesday, and I invite you to come back. Sexuality is a part of that conversation um, in a healthy way. So now we have these, these each little distinct events that we read about and are just shocking to us. I'm going to do the first one, which creates the pattern, and then we'll reference them. But the first one we find in Judges 16, 7 through 9, Samson says to her, so she has come, she has seduced him, she has um, put him in a place to want to tell her secrets. She's, she's, she, he's looking for some kind of intimacy to share what's going on inside of him. And Samson says to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings they have not been, that have not been dried, I shall become weak and be like any man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had been lying in ambush in the inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Okay, so <clears throat> this is the pattern. The pattern's going to happen four times, um, except it's going to have a little bit of a different ending the fourth time. But this is the pattern. So she... She seduces him. She uses her power of seductiveness and her power of whining in order to get him to tell her something that he doesn't want to tell. It's the big secret. Then whatever that thing is, she does to him. And then after she has done that thing to him, she calls the Philistines out of the inner room. Um, they come barreling out of whatever this inner room is, and they attack Samson. And then Samson apparently breaks free of whatever bonds he has, and then he probably kills all those Philistines. Um, and, and then that's the end of the story. That happens four times. Now, here's what struck me. This is a story of desperation. Obviously, Samson is desperate for Delilah. Desperate for all that this means to him from her. But, but here's what struck me that I'd never thought of before is that, so can you imagine being on the, the, the team of interlopers as the Philistines? So team number one gets told, hey, we found out his secret. It's seven bowstrings. Sweet. Now we finally know his secret. They hide. You can, you can give them a certain amount of understanding why they're willing to do this. They think they found the big secret. They then come out, they attack Samson. He slaughters them. Imagine being on team two. No, now we really have the secret. Okay, now we really have it. And you're like, okay, are we sure this time? I mean, are we totally sure? this time? Because last time, it wasn't the real secret. Nope, this time we got it for sure. Then you hide, you come out, you all get slaughtered, and then team three has to be chosen. Are you willing to be on team three? Think how desperate. Not only is he desperate for Delilah, but the Philistines are desperate to get rid of Samson. Being on team three would be awful. Team three doesn't work out for them either. Team four? Would you be? I would never be willing to be on team. I'm like, no, you can ask somebody else. Listen, this this is not working, but what's amazing is we see Samson flirting with the truth with Delilah more and more. Um, their desperation is just as clear. Um, this should give us, by the way, the Philistines keep coming back time after time, and Samson keeps coming back time after time. The power of sexual sin. Listen, there's nothing wrong with the desires here. Sometimes what we have to teach is to let people know the, the, the God-given desires that, that God has given are not evil. But every time there's a God-given desire, every single thing that God creates, Satan is always going to offer counterfeits for it. Always. He's always going to offer counterfeits, and they're never going to be the real thing. 
What people really want, I think maybe even as my heart begins to break for Samson, maybe even the true intimacy that Samson is seeking, to be freely chosen by a woman who seems to want to be freely chosen by him is what he's really seeking, which is always the case. That's what, that's what men and women are usually really after, and yet there's always this counterfeit being offered. So if you want, you want to buy a, a, you know, an expensive Rolex, but you can only save a little bit of money every month, and you take that little grubby 50 bucks towards the bank every month, and as you're on your way down to deposit this 50 extra dollars, it's going to take you months and months to save up for a Rolex, but there's somebody on the side of the road selling Rolexes for 50 bucks. Are they real Rolexes? This is the correct symbol. Are they real Rolexes? No. Do you really think they're real Rolexes? No. You know better. It's going to turn your arm green. It's going to break. Certainly not going to be watertight. I mean, things going to, it's not going to last. But it's cheap, and it's now, and I could get a sum of the feel of maybe a little bit of the illusion of what I really want, but that's all it is. It's not the desire. It's not wrong to want a Rolex. It's not the desire that's wrong. It's the way you're going about doing it. It's seeking it through the counterfeit. Always going to be a bad idea. That's how Satan gets us. And by the way, now you're another month from having what you really want. And the next month, by the way, he's going to be there again, willing to replace the one you broke. It only costs 50 bucks. Um, we see the scary, and this, by the way, the slide is instant. It's not like we wait until he starts talking about his hair to realize he's wrong. The first thing he tells them is a sacred number of fresh bowstrings. What are bowstrings made out of? They're made out of sinew, a thing from a dead animal, a fresh one, so they're still wet. So here he's flirting again with the Nazarite vow. Take a piece of a dead animal. And the sacred number seven, it has to do with God. So he's already, even with the first one, the sacred seven number of the Hebrews and, we're, and with a piece of a dead animal, that's what will do it. He's, he's, still, he's already starting to give away things that aren't, he shouldn't be giving away. Then, then the sec, second time she does it, it's new unused ropes. So something that's never been done before. It really comes down to the fact that his hair's never been cut. But he's already starting with this like, this something new, something that's never been done before. Number three, which is when you know he's just right on the verge of death. He says, it's seven, sacred number of locks, of my hair. So he's right there, and he has, he has come right to the edge of telling her the truth. He still doesn't, and every one of these, she has to, by the way, weave his seven locks of hair into probably a hand loom um, you know, for, for weaving wool or whatever. This would have taken some real work. I mean, she was delicate, like, a, like a, a safe cracker is delicate. So she gets this done. She wakes him up again. Oh, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He destroys the, the, the loom. He tears his hair free. He destroys the Philistines again. Then the fourth time he tells her, the truth. Listen to this in verse chapter 16, verse 16 and 17. When she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. The Hebrew here, literally, his soul was shrunk. She just, the pressure created, collapsed his sense of himself. His soul was destroyed. He was weary. I will tell you, as a therapist, this is, and, when, and, and therapists will tell you this, anger is a problem. When you see someone, when a couple comes in for marriage counseling and they are angry, that's a problem. But it's no way insurmountable. 
When you meet a couple and one of them is weary, this is a desperate moment. When one of them is just worn out, I don't care anymore. I'm just, I'm just exhausted. That's when you know this is, this is a crisis in a marriage. That's the step right before the hardening of the heart. And so just be aware. This is a weary is, is a dangerous place for us as humans. We're often about to make a bad decision. So verse 17, he told her all of his heart. That's a heartbreaking phrase to me. It isn't just he told her all of his secrets. He didn't tell her this last secret. This is what makes me wonder, was Samson pursuing the intimacy with a woman that we all, men, typically all of us want? I don't know. But regardless, he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I'll become weak like any other man. His life has been worn away. He knows the source of his own strength, but he tells her anyway. He's touched dead things. He has drunk wine, apparently. Now this final thing. So she does it. He goes to sleep in her lap, and he, she shaves his head. This is, listen to this. I mean, again, like I'm telling you, my, my heart has gone out. I've always, and, and let me tell you, I don't disdain Samson. I'm not disgusted by Samson because I think I'm better than he is. It's because the very same things that disgust me about myself disgust me about Samson. The very th same things I disdain in myself, I disdain in Samson. And so I've always kind of thought of Samson as, as just, just kind of an a unpitiable, is that a word? An unpitiable character. I, have, I just have so little sympathy on him for the same reason I have so little sympathy on myself about this stuff, I guess. But it just, uh, I just have been mostly disgusted by him. And studying him this time, my heart began to break for him a little bit in a couple of different ways. And here's, this is one of the verses. And she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. How do you not know? I mean, could he, he couldn't tell the difference? That, that phrase scares me. It scares me to think that we could be so unaware of ourselves, that we could be so unaware of what has changed in us, the level of confusion that must set in for him. Can you imagine as they've got him bound and they come charging in, and with this great prideful lion's grin that Samson has carried his whole life, he flexes against the bonds and nothing happens. And he had no idea that was about to happen. No clue. It's, it's really it kind of that moment, the level of confusion that he must face. This, is, this must be what so many face when the carpet is pulled out from under them, when the curtain is pulled back and their sin is revealed. And they think, I, I never thought this would actually happen. I never thought this could actually happen. The, the stunning, blinding, deafening, and stupefying power of sin. David of Bathsheba is a brilliant, terrifying picture of it. This one is even worse. How could he possibly not have seen this coming? How could Samson have been so blinded that he didn't see that this was about, that this is what was going to happen? He wakes up with no hair and still thinks somehow. I mean, I imagine his hair is scattered everywhere in the room. And he wakes up and thinks he's still going to do this, and he's not. Now, what's interesting is God hasn't truly left him, but the strength that God had given him as a Nazarite is gone. This special strength that he has, it's gone. It, it is, 
How far can it take us? What these consequences of suddenly being fired from a job or suddenly being divorced or, or suddenly being revealed. This is, this is what happens all the time to us. Um, there's a program that I, I teach um, of, of young students, of students who are being prepared to be ministers. And, and when we started, every single week they had a different speaker. We would get speakers from all over the country, all over the world, and they would come speak to them. What was amazing was you didn't have to pay these speakers. They were so desperate to try to help future ministers, they would, they would come sometimes on their own dime just to share with them. So they would come and they would share. And then um, one of the questions at the very beginning of the program, the students had the same questions they asked every teacher, every one of these people. They would ask the same questions. And one of them was, do you know anyone personally who has fallen from the ministry for moral failing? That was one of the questions. Okay, So every time they were asked that question, it is, it is impressive and heartbreaking that every single one of them answered yes every year. Yes, I personally know someone who fell in ministry for moral failings. I personally know someone. But maybe more stunning is this. We think, this is kind of, we're pretty sure this is true, that while that part of the program was being done, every single year we had at least one speaker who didn't get to come back the next year because they had fallen morally in the intervening year out of the ministry. Well, you want something to get your attention. Here's what's wild. They sat in front of a group of students and were asked, do you know anyone who has fallen morally? And while answering that question they had an inappropriate relationship with someone as they're answering that question, and that does not strike them as a problem. That didn't trigger them to go, yeah, I know someone personally, and next year someone will know me personally when I fell out of it. In my life, there's a gentleman who was, who was Ginger's godfather. So I met him when I, about time I met Ginger, and, and he did my premarital counseling. He was a professor at DTS, um, preaching and counseling. Those were his two areas. A gifted preacher. Um, he did our premarital counseling and then did our wedding. Um, he had written books. He had started ministries. The entire time that he did my premarital counseling, he was having an affair with a student. It came out 10 years later, and it had been ongoing for those 10 years. People had excused it. They had walked away from it. And finally, he is confronted on it. And he, is, he comes home one day to find the elders of his church sitting in his living room. And they say, on this hand, you've got 34 years of marriage, three kids, multiple grandkids, books you've written, your professorship here, the ministries that you run, all of these things. And on this side, you have an illicit affair with a married woman. And in the confrontation filled with pride, he said, I choose her. That's, that's stunning enough. To me, sadly, he had no problem a few months later hanging out his shingle as a counselor, advertising himself as a Christian counselor. He saw, that, he saw nothing wrong in this. Here's what here's what's blew my mind. is that So he was supposed to speak at Pine Cove the next summer. I was one of the people who helped get speakers. And so I called him and left a message. He didn't answer. Not surprisingly, he, I called and said, hey, I mean, obviously, don't come. You're not speaking week whatever at summer camp this year. You don't, don't come. I found out through his son that he was completely 
confused by that. Why, doesn't Chris, why isn't Chris going to let me come speak at family camp? The title of his, his series was going to be The Memoirs of a Family Man, by the way. He goes, I don't understand why Chris won't let me come speak. His son, who was also speechless, didn't know what to say to him. He said, if I, if I hadn't been caught, I would have taught exactly the same stuff in exactly the same way, and no one would have known the difference. Everyone still would have loved it. So the fact that I've been caught shouldn't change the fact that I can come deliver that same stuff. The stupefying, blinding, deafening effect of sin on our lives is really not measurable. <laughs> Stunningly, there are people in the room right now involved in adultery who when it comes out in six months or eight months, I'm gonna, when you're sitting there talking to me, and I'm going to say like, so I'm just curious, like that day that I talked about this, like nothing that didn't strike you as like, this probably ought to be a time I, I do something about my life. It happens every time. This is my prayer for us is that we would ask God to search us and to reveal us to ourselves in this. How does Samson do this? The same way we do it. That's how. How does Samson not see this coming? How could he not? I mean, come on. He was surprised to wake up bold. Anyway, today is the day for repentance, whatever it is. Samson's last sight on earth was probably the woman who he loved, who had finally shared his whole heart with, having a fortune in silver poured into her hands. And the next thing you know, Samson is now chained to a stick where he pushes it in a circle all day, every day, grinding out grain, all day, every day, hundreds of times walking in that circle because he's been, blind, and been blinded, they've removed his eyes. And I don't know what goes on. I would love to have a recording of Samson's life during those days, weeks, months, however long he was doing that. What was going on in his head? Did he finally get some introspection going on? At some point in there, did he confess his sin and recognize it? It's really hard to tell. The prayer that he's going to pray at the end still seems filled with rage, like maybe he never caught on. But I'd like to think maybe he did. Maybe the language that we get um, tells us that he did. I don't know. It does tell us in this funny little statement um, that you got to love, it says his hair began to grow back. Maybe this is a new vow on his part. The Nazarite vow can be taken at any point. Maybe he takes a new vow just to live out as a Nazarite. It's hard to know. But this caged lion who's not so young anymore still isn't safe to keep caged. He may be broken, but he's not done breaking things. Um, he may... Um, he may be destroyed, but he's not done destroying things. His hair starts to grow back. Maybe he finally repents in the thousands and thousands and thousands of circles that he walks one step in front of the other. He wakes up every day in complete darkness to push a stick, then to go to bed, then that night in complete darkness. Finally, the Philistines decide to throw a giant party to worship their god, Dagon, who's just one of the Baals. He's not special. Um, it's the God connected to grain production, so it makes sense that they might have had their, their best grain producer or at least their grain grinder at the party. But <clears throat> here's what tells us. So apparently there's this two-tier building with thousands of Philistines up on the top, including their lords and a bunch more down bottom. And, and they bring him in and they set him. There's pillars holding up the top. And, and apparently they, the, the stabilizing pillars or the pillars that are able to support the whole building, support structure are close enough that you can reach them both with both hands. 
And Samson convinces the boy who's holding his chain to put his hands against them because he's tired, he's exhausted, he's weary, and he puts his hands on there. Um, and Samson calls on the Lord and says, Oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. Oh, God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Really not much of a prayer. Um, not particularly impressive. It still feels like his main concern is vengeance for his eyes, not to set my people free, not to do what you've called me to do, not any of that kind of stuff, um, but just that, just, just venge for eyes. It still feels egocentric, but I, I would like to think, for example, there are three, essentially three different Hebrew base words for God, Adonai, Elohim, and Yahweh. And Samson uses all three of those in that short prayer. Maybe Samson doesn't know enough about God to even know how to talk to him. Maybe he doesn't understand him well enough, and he cries out with the only words he knows, and God decides to do this. But here's the thing that struck me for the first time. Um, as I wrote down, God is going to one last time use his weapon against the Philistines, and that's this morning singing that song about us being God's sons. This is what struck me. What if, what if Samson has never been taught that he is God's son? It struck me that maybe Samson has spent his whole life being taught that he was God's weapon. And I think that would do something to you. Dad, why can't I cut my hair like everybody else does? Everybody's making fun of me because of my long hair. Um, Mom, why can't I have a glass of wine at the Passover like everybody else does? And, and maybe what he was told all along was, well, here's why. The reason why is because you're, you're set aside to be God's weapon. I mean, you're going to destroy the Philistines. That's what you're here for. And it struck me that maybe, and I don't know, this is all supposition, but maybe part of the rage that Samson feels comes from the fact that he's never been told. He was never told, no, no, what, what you are is God's son. God adores you. He loves you. This, this opportunity to be his weapon is merely an extension of being his child. It's, that's not who you are. It's a descriptor. You're God's weapon. That's a descriptor. What defines you is being God's son. I even wonder sometimes in churches like ours, as we try hard to avoid behavioral modification, but we talk about how minister, every member is a minister, and, and we live out this ministry that, so, so next week we're going to be talking about, we're going to set aside, about probably four Sundays a year, we're going to set aside specifically for kind of remembrance, um, and we're going to look at some of the main kind of sacraments of, of our church. We're going to look at parental, dedic we're going to have parental dedication and baptism and the Lord's Supper all next week. And we're going to do that about four times a year and really emphasize. We're not going to have any teaching that's not about those. The, to remind us, this is, this is the remembrance of who we are connected to all these different people throughout history and the messages of, of Almighty God and, and to help remember who we are as a church and who we are as God's follower people and, and what it means to be his sons and daughters. And, and by the way, if it's like most times, um, it, it won't be just the paid staff doing this stuff. Rarely are we the ones who do baptism, praise God. It's usually moms and dads and brothers and sisters and spouses and, and kids and, and disciple makers and others who do the baptizing because Matthew 28 is for all believers, not just paid ones. Um, we're all supposed to be going and teaching and making disciples and baptizing. That's all of us, every single Christian. But maybe sometimes if we're not careful, that comes out as saying, like, you're a cog in God's machine. And I don't ever want that to be the mistake we make. You're not a cog in God's machine. Um, we are created um, to be his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to accomplish these great works that God has set in advance for us. That's from the end of the or middle of chapter of Hebrews, chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. 
But if we're not careful, I guess we could sometimes miss that that word there, craftsmanship, poema, the, art, the, the work of an artist. We're not, our main value isn't that we're common, the ability to just to do things and accomplish things. That's great. That's just an extension of who we are. We get to do that. And maybe if Samson's been raised his whole life to be thought of as a weapon, it suddenly struck me that maybe, maybe that's his problem. It's hard to do God's work, isn't it? It's hard to sacrifice for what God has called you to do. It's hard to sacrifice and do the things. And when you got a guy like Samson, I mean, that would have been hard to be a, have a life like that. And if, what he, if he wasn't ever given the, the underlying truth that you are, you are God's son, and that's why you're doing these things, not because God's got a, a weapon that he just wants to use sometimes. So it struck me that maybe there's an error here. For the first time, um, I began to feel, honestly, I think for the first time in my life, I began to feel sympathy for Samson this time around. I'm more heartbroken for him than I am just irritated by him. I think always in the past, he just annoyed me. Kind of like Jacob. I still feel that way about Jacob, though. I've got to study him some more, I guess. But what's that like? What's it like to be treated? I don't know. God still seems to be more like Baal, a magician, needing a magician to manipulate him. But I wonder if we know God better. For example, I'm not okay, as I've said before, with God using a self-serving, vengeful, childish arrogant, twisted, perverse, rebellious narcissist like Samson, and then putting him in Hebrews 11. I mean, what is that about, right? That irritates me. It annoys me. And I realized I judge God, and I think he made a bad call here. And now I've turned myself into Samson. Um, the gentleman who I've told you guys about, uh, who I've discussed online a few times on the, on the podcast, the, uh, he's an atheist, and um, he actually... Um, discussed with me that he was going to be in the area and wondered if our church would, would welcome him to come and visit on a Sunday afternoon. And so I told him that we would. And so on the, I think it's the 26th, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, he and I are going to sit up here on the stage and do point-counterpoint on a few topics, and, um, which I'm not overly concerned about that. I just want he and his friends to like, be really um, overwhelmed with hospitality when they come, which I think will be even cooler. But I think it's too easy for us to miss something, and we put ourselves in the same position as the kind of new atheist does, which is, um, there is no God, and I hate him. There is no God, and when I judge him, he doesn't do things the way I think he ought to. There, there is no God, and he makes a lot of mistakes. And it's just, it's, it, becomes, it creates kind of this absurd contradiction. Um, and so when I go, God, you're, you're out of line to use a guy like Samson or Jephthah. What were you thinking? Like, now I've turned myself into one of them. The truth is, we want the childish, the child in us, the flesh in us, wants a God who we understand and who we control and who all that kind of stuff. But of course I'm going to be uncomfortable with him. A holy, perfect God who, of course, I don't understand to agree with. Why would I? I'm not holy or perfect, except what God is doing in me. I can't, I can't manufacture any of those. Why would I even think I would be on the same page with this guy? Sometimes, of course, there are going to be times when I'm going to be scratching my head going, what, what are you thinking? And he's saying, I'm thinking rightly, and you aren't. Well, that's going to be the case. Of course, that's going to happen all the time. I'm not holy and perfect without him. We're going to look ahead at the stories. Uh, hopefully, in a couple of weeks, we're going to look ahead at the stories from the end of the book of, of Judges a little bit and hopefully compile those and wrap them up. They just get weirder and weirder as these last couple of chapters, last few chapters of Judges. But we'll, we'll talk about them a little bit and see what we can learn from them. But here's one of the things that stands out to me. So I think there's plenty here from Samson for us to wrestle with this week and, and moving forward. 
I will add this. Um, uh, Andy Ehrman introduced me to a pastor from, um, a, a, I don't even know what era, a while back. Um, he references cars, so it can't be before the 1900s. But, um, but he's got that kind of old school style that I really admire and love. And, and, and I just, at this stage in my life, am not able to pull off um, as much as I would like to. He's got that thing where he starts off, you know, real calm and smooth at the beginning and cracks a few jokes and it's just a setup. I mean, his people have to know this by the time they've heard him speak many times. Like, oh, he's, this is so good. And you just, and then he gets to the main point he's making and he starts screaming and yelling and pounding on the desk and whatever he's got. I don't know what podium he's got. It'd have to be a good one. This one wouldn't survive it. He, I mean, he, he cuts loose, but here's one of the things that he said that I really want to reference. I think is powerful for us to walk away from today. Our desire to do things our way is just an infection. It's just ridiculous that we would have this. Paris Reedhead or Wrighthead says, um, and I'm paraphrasing him, but he says, you know, we, we talk about wanting God to be our navigator. We want God in the co-pilot seat. We want God in the, in the passenger seat to, to guide us in life. And he says, he says, the truth is, if we had any sanity at all, what we'd want is for God to be in the driver's seat, and we're tied up in the trunk, <laughs> shouting out instructions that he ignores. Like that's, that's, if we had any brains at all, we would be asking that about every little thing. God, what would you do in this situation? How would you handle it if you were me? How would, because he knows what he's doing and he has the right perspective and we don't. And, and so I, I just, I feel like the, these two messages, what is God showing you? I pray that those of us who have overt rebellious sin in our lives and we know, and it's just a matter of time before someone sees the wrong webpage or the wrong email or the wrong text or the, or the wrong bank account or the whatever, and we are suddenly just revealed that if all it takes for Satan to bring you down is to show people the truth, you're in a dangerous position. You're trusting Satan to not bring you down at that point. And so what is that in our lives? What is that, that that's there? I don't, I don't know for you. But for you to be able to engage with that, as, as I feel like God always does when I'm discussing, when we're looking at someone like Samson, what is that obvious thing that everyone else would be going like, what the heck? And meanwhile, we're just blissfully walking along accepting the counterfeits. And so that's part of this. And then as part of that as well, to confess what that is before God, to let him work as he sees fit. So I'm going to pray this for all of us. Please pray, the, pray something similar with me. Father, we are... Um, we're humbled by the power <clears throat> of your word to reveal ourselves to us. Um, Father, we ask that you would search us and know us, that you would reveal our inward thoughts, our wicked ways, that you would reveal them to us, Lord, before they get revealed to the world so that we can engage and get the help we need, the mentoring we need, the counsel we need, whatever it is that we need to begin to live in victory. God, uh, those who are in here who... They know exactly what it is in their life. They know exactly what the portal to sin is for them. They know exactly what the sinful relationship is that they're living in denial of. Lord, I pray you would reveal it in such a way that it is not avoidable. And that they would be able to be rescued by you from the consequences there as much as possible. Um, Lord, before our eyes are put out and we find ourselves enslaved, walking in that addictive cycle, circle after circle after circle, I pray that. I pray that we will be faithful as parents to teach our children the truth about sin and about the wonder of the good gifts that you give us, the good provision that you offer. And I pray we'll be able to live that out, Lord. God, I, I ask that you would guide us today. You know every part of this. I pray that you would teach us to call upon your name. For those who have never called upon your name, the name of your son to save us, I pray that today would be the day to be rescued.
from sin and death so they would be sons and daughters of you. For the rest of us, Lord, reveal to us so that we in great joy can be involved in the good works that you have prepared for us with you and not despite us, Lord. We pray this in the name of your magnificent Son. Amen.